guys on. But, um, but yeah, no, the, uh, I, I mean, it's, the first thing is just to kind of a little how you got there kind of thing. And <laughs> I have to get one of those. Those are good. You know, the, if I was really a modern person, I'd just use my damn phone. because that's This what phone? People do. Yeah. Is it good enough? It is, yeah. Oh, is it really? Uh, this is like still like clinging to some old journalism thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You um, asked me how I got to be the chairman of the FCC. Yeah, so, well, so you were born in D.C., right? No, right. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You were, okay. Um, but I was six months old when the family moved here. Looking, my dad was looking for work. So I grew up in the uh, shadow of the Pentagon, which is where he was working. Oh, yeah. In Falls Church, Virginia. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and so you just, you know, I mean, you, you grew up here, and, and uh, what kind of ambitions did you have when you were, like, yeah. Uh, well, what kind, what kind of ambitions did I have when I was young? I don't, I don't know precisely. Uh, <laughs> meaning, I don't remember precisely. Uh, you know, I was a big fan of the Washington Senators, and we lost all the time. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, uh, had I been more athletically gifted, I would have imagined that I could be one of the players for the Senators because. It was very easy to they, they not be very good and still be in their lineup. Uh, but as it, but it came to pass that I was doing pretty well in school, and so my parents decided that for high school I should go to prep school. Mm -hmm. So uh, after I don't think I got in eighth grade, but I got in ninth grade to St. Albans, and that's where I met Al Gore, mm -hmm. uh, who had already been there for a number of years. And um, uh, that proved to be very fortuitous uh, because... Uh, were, you, were you guys the exact same age? And uh, he's 28 days younger. <laughs> <laughs> so you were in the same classes and all that. This, is, this, is, this mattered when you were in high school. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> he, was the, uh, he, was, uh, he was the youngest uh, until a still younger person enrolled uh, later, and then I was the second youngest in the class. Um, the reason that that's relevant is that uh, time passed, and when the Beatles came to Washington for their very first concert in America, which happened to be in Washington, neither one of us were old enough to have driver's licenses, so somebody else had to drive, but we went to the uh, went. concert, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> which was at the Washington Coliseum uh -huh. um, in the uh, in February of, uh, t uh, of 1964, so we didn't turn. 16 until March of 1964. Mm -hmm. So, uh, me on March 3, which means next week is my birthday, and him on March 31. This is a little more detail than you <laughs> could have imagined. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, so then, uh, you know, I went to college and law school and decided, I guess I have to be a lawyer. Uh, I, did you just kind of fall in? Well, my father was a lawyer, then your uh, father was a lawyer. and uh, I really couldn't think of anything else to do except possibly be an historian, but even then I uh, was aware that that was a reclusive and underpaid life. Um, <laughs> so uh, I started law practice in Los Angeles in the uh, middle of the uh, uh, re the recessions that were the result of the the long recessions of the 70s that stemmed from the oil shocks. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very hard to get a job, but I fortunately started with a law firm 
uh, called Latham and Watkins, where I was the 85th lawyer. Uh, and that firm um, subsequently became one of the two biggest, most successful law firms in the world. Uh, that's the secret of success, Kevin. You should go somewhere very early uh, that is destined uh, to be really great and big, and then just don't get fired. <laughs> that's the secret well, of success. Well, I USA Today, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and um, so anyhow, um, uh, then in 1980, uh, I had a really big trial on the East Coast, and also my wife and I got married, and I said to the firm, I'm trying this case in the East Coast, we're getting married, I'd like to be in the Washington office, and so I moved to Washington at, at the end of 1980. Mm -hmm. And in 83, not as an employee, but just as a volunteer uh, to help Al with what was then his uh, big step up, which was he was moving from the House of Representatives to run for Senate. So, uh, Had you been friends all those years? Well, I was out in California, so we were out of touch while I was in mm -hmm. California in the law practice. Uh, but, that, but then when I moved back to Washington, yeah. Uh, put us back into proximity. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyhow, I just never stopped uh, helping him, and he never stopped running for things and doing <laughs> better and better. So he got elected for the Senate in 84, and then in 87, uh, uh, he decided to run for president, uh, late 87. Is that right? No, he decided in the middle of 87 mm -hmm. to run for president. So. Uh, most of 87 and uh, on until 88, you know, I was a very committed volunteer uh, doing lots of different things. And uh, that campaign uh, was colorful and uh, educational and uh, basically a failure. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, uh, in 80, uh, 80, Nine at ninety, uh, he ran again for the Senate because he had to get reelected in nineteen ninety. Mm -hmm. In fact, he was the first person to carry every county in Tennessee in the uh, I think since Reconstruction. I think it was since Reconstruction, mm -hmm. and um, and then also in that time period, uh, he started working on his first big book, which was called Earth in the Balance, which was about, the, yep. about climate change. Yeah. And I helped edit that. And then in 91, he decided to make a movie about climate change, a movie that ultimately became Inconvenient Truth. Uh, and in 92, I was with him. Uh, I had to raise money for the movie and create, help create a corporation, a nonprofit, and do all the planning, we had a big script, global travel. And in 92, in the summer, we were together at the Earth Summit in Rio, and then we went to do some filming in the uh, rainforest on the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. There's a rainforest on, there's the, rain, there's the rainforest in the Amazon, but there's also a rainforest in the Atlantic, which is south of Rio, mm -hmm. uh, down toward Argentina, but still in Brazil. And I, around a town called Curitiba, mm -hmm. 
and uh, we were there with uh, Paul Wellstone, uh, who subsequently uh, died tragically in an air crash. Uh, but we were there in this bay, and uh, you know, had some, got some great shots of Al looking like uh, John F. Kennedy in PT-109, you know, as he's uh, on the bridge of this boat, you know, sailing across the, uh, racing across the water with the rain pouring down. And I was lecturing, you know, about the climate change. And, uh, anyhow, it's just uh, fantastic. So we get this phone call from somebody I'd been in law school with, uh, Bill Clinton, and the call was, could you come up to the United States, uh, wherever the heck you are, could you come to the United States? I'd like to interview you to be uh, on the ticket. Mm -hmm. So I said, Al, this, this is a good idea. I know Clinton from law school. We were in tax class together, admiralty <laughs> class together, uh, and uh, you know, you'll really like him. And they'd never, they'd, they'd met in passing. They'd never had a conversation before. So Al, uh, so th that cut short our filming, and uh, we <laughs> took the film and put it into a uh, refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, taken out of the refrigerator in the early 2000s. Yeah, uh, and a, about six seconds of some of the uh, footage is in the movie. Oh, yeah. the <laughs> not, not me, I'm not in it, yeah, but some, yeah. about six seconds. So, um, anyhow, uh, you know, he gets interviewed uh, and uh, they get along famously. Uh, the Clinton had. Did, did a couple of things in picking out that were extremely interesting. Uh, number one, he wanted to recreate the political base that Jimmy Carter had managed to mobilize to get elected. Mm -hmm. The view in 1992 was that it was extremely hard for any Democrat to win at all. Uh, the um, Reagan era, you know, had produced not only Reagan, but also unusually his vice president had gotten elected too. And so it was 12 years of Republicans and you know, this kind of lurch to the right, uh, you know, that, um, and away from the traditional New Deal, Democratic base had raised the serious question of how can any Democrat get elected on a national basis? Um, and the uh, social issues uh, that are now so significant as the division between the parties were not so significant at the time. They, they existed, but they didn't have the political ramifications and the political prominence. So the question was, what did Democrats stand for? How could they possibly get elected, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and Carter, if you go back and look at the map, you would be very, very surprised because Gerald Ford carried a very significant number of uh, states that today are totally blue. Really? Huh? And Carter carried a very significant number of totally red states. That's interesting. Carried Georgia, uh -huh. carried border states. Uh, I think he might have, I can't remember if he carried Florida or not, but he might have carried Florida. So the Carter base was what Bill Clinton wanted to, um, to, to grab again, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, and so, um, so sending that message uh, and actually winning those states, it was very important to get another southerner, mm -hmm. another border state southerner. And I mentioned to you that Gord won every county in Tennessee, mm -hmm. including the Republican counties in eastern Tennessee. 
Eastern Tennessee, as you may remember from your history, is the chunk of Tennessee that uh, didn't want to join the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so anyhow, um, and so therefore had always been very Republican, uh, right? Even past, you know, the Jim Crow. I mean, it, it had been pretty conservative. So with Al's demonstrated ability to carry a border state, and number two, with his reputation since he had supported the Gulf War mm -hmm. in 1991, mm -hmm. unusually, most Democrats had opposed it in the Senate. So with that reputation as well, being strong on military defense and aggressive foreign policy, and also another young guy, mm -hmm. right, very similar in age, I think Clinton is only like a year older or two years older, I guess he's almost two years older. It, it, you know, it, it, it was. It had a lot of moxie as a uh, just a visual. The two young people together, that, but, yeah. but a big part of it was let's carry this out. They did actually uh -huh. carry Tennessee and Arkansas. I don't remember all the other states, but uh, you know, it was quite. It was quite important because Clinton didn't get fifty percent of the vote, mm -hmm. and um, it was. It was not at all clear that Clinton was going to win this election. Mm -hmm. uh, it was. It was perceived as correctly perceived as very, very close. It was also essential that Clinton, um, um, to win, it was essential that he make a move towards embracing Wall Street. And this became later what was called Rubenomics, meaning this the, the fundamental commitment of the Democratic Party not to uh, 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 taxing and redistributing the money nearly as much as instead of following Bob Rubin's famous maxim of the time, which was the single best welfare policy is a, a growing economy. Mm -hmm. Now, we, people would say it, at present in the Democratic Party that the Democrats swung too far in that direction and now, you know, a dose of Elizabeth Warrenism you know, was necessary. But that was the the mindset at the time. And that's extremely relevant to the story of communications, as I will explain. But we but we but I'm on the um, transition team. I have the Gore seat in the inner circle of like twelve people and I'm fascinatingly you know, in, in all of these discussions about what to do, and I'm there as they're putting together the this commitment to a bal a balanced budget mm -hmm. through increasing taxes but also cutting spending and, and that became the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993. Uh, in that time period I said, uh, Al uh, asked me to write a memo about what the Vice President can do and I wrote the memo and the conclusion was not much. <laughs> and so he went to Clinton and he said let's do this completely differently. Let me have the power of the pen for two topic areas. And Clinton says, what do you have in mind? And Gore said, I have in mind the environment and communications. Mm -hmm. My people will step up those jobs and the policy issues will be decided in my office and people won't be able to go around me to you, Mr. President-elect, uh, Mr. President-elect. Uh, but I'll tell you what I'm doing and if you don't like what I'm doing, you're the boss, but but the staff will, won't, will only go up to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, Clinton said, that sounds pretty good to me. Has anyone ever done it like this before? And, and Al said, only in like oddball, isolated things like Lyndon Johnson got, got NASA as his 
project, which is why Houston is where, where is where we were manning the, uh, the 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 uh, yeah. uh, moon moon launch and moonwalk programs, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to Cape Canaveral. Yeah. Uh, but but other than sort of these one-offs, you know, there never was a any situation that we could find in history where whole topic areas were uh, assigned to the vice president. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Clinton had enough self-confidence and enough trust in Al to feel like that was the right thing to do. So then I went to Al and said, could I be the FCC chairman since you've got this communications sector? And I know I knew the Clintons from law school, but I wasn't a Clinton person because my political and Friendship history was much more being a core person. So um, that seemed good to Al, and Al uh, went to Clinton, and uh, the way it was told to me is Clinton said, darn, I wish you'd asked me earlier because Vernon Jordan asked me for one favor, and I said, Vernon, I love you like a brother, and you can have one favor, and Vernon said the one favor I want is to be able to pick the FCC chairman, and uh, <laughs> I want that job to go to my stepdaughter, uh, Tony Cook Bush. Uh -huh. So Clinton said to Al, so it's going to be uh, Tony Cook Bush. And then they came and told me, and I said, well, you know, that's too bad, but I guess your other topic area is the environment, so would you mind if I went back to Brazil where we were never finished the movie and I could be the ambassador of Brazil and I could help try to persuade the people in Brazil to not destroy the rainforests of the Amazon or Curitiba. So then they sent me over to the State Department for an interview, and the State Department said, what do you know about Brazil? And I said, not too much, uh, but you know, it needs to be part of the global effort to talk about climate change. And they said, well, we got this little note here that says that you know, unless you have two heads, you're going to be the ambassador of Brazil. So that's where I was headed to be the ambassador to Brazil. And then uh, Tony, who I didn't know, uh, dropped out uh, mm -hmm. of the, uh, withdrew her candidacy, um, which I later found out was because her husband had to move to New York and she was pregnant. Um, and so she decided who needs to be the FCC chairman under those circumstances, bearing in mind that the FCC chairman's job was fairly obscure. Mm -hmm. 47th on the protocol rank of federal offices. Um, I wanted it because it was one of two, Al's two topic areas, um, and also because uh, I had helped build the communications practice at Latham and Watkins, but I didn't know anything about regulation at all. I'd never been involved in any FCC regulation. It had only been in the building one time in my life and actually didn't remember where it was. But, but Al called up and said, and I'm sitting in the law office, and he called up and he said, "I guess you're not going to Brazil after all, and uh, you're going to, you know, you're, the president's going to name you to be the FCC chair." And I said, "Wow, that's really great. Thank you very much." And he said, "Quote, don't thank me. Just do what's best for the country." <laughs> so then uh, we uh, then we had a couple of meetings, and he said, uh, uh, "What I want you to do is I want you to." Uh, and this is roughly speaking May of 1993. He said, I want you to make sure that every schoolgirl in Carthage, Tennessee can go to the Library of Congress without buying a bus ticket. Mm -hmm. And that thing that needs to get built is called the Information Superhighway. Mm -hmm. 
and he'd been talking about this for a number of years, so I knew in general, but I also then understood in specific that was the policy goal, mm -hmm. or it was certainly the essence of the policy goal. But there had been a lot of work in Congress in 91, 92 about reforming telecom in the same way that other sectors in the Carter administration had been reformed and deregulated, like, for example, uh, aviation was the big example for yeah, yeah. Alfred Kahn. And so, um, so the Democrats wanted to, in, in which they held Congress in 93, both, both houses, so they wanted to do this. So it was pretty exciting because we knew that, that a bill was going to be written in 93, 94, and we hoped passed. Mm -hmm. So all through 93, we met sometimes weekly, often every other week, uh, at, in Gore's office in the West Wing while I was waiting to be confirmed. And many of us met. Joe Stiglitz, uh, future Nobel Prize winner, and Charlene Barshevsky was occasionally there, the trade ambassador, and, and Bingaman, head of the antitrust division, and a bunch of Gore staffers, you know, a bunch of people crammed into Al's little office, and basically doing an outline of of the combination of new rules and you know paradigm breaking and deregulation that we hoped would produce the information superhighway, whatever that might be. But we didn't know technically, at any technical level, what it would be. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyhow, I get I don't get confirmed until November of '93, but I finally did, uh, mostly because Bob Dole, as he later said to me personally, he said I thought it would really piss off Al if I held your nomination and I thought if he got pissed off enough that he would go to President Clinton and get President Clinton to give me what I wanted which is I wanted my guy to go on the Federal Election Commission. Mm -hmm. Well I said to Senator Dole years later that worked out didn't it because that's exactly what happened uh, <laughs> and when they finally did the deal with the FEC and the FCC I got confirmed right around Thanksgiving of 1993. Uh. Incredibly lucky break for me because in not on the exact same date, but almost on the exact same date, <clears throat> meaning the right the same, you know, six week time period, two things happened. First, Mark Andreessen released the Mosaic browser that made it possible for everybody's website, mm -hmm. everybody's computer to be a website yeah, yeah. and to visit any other website. And it was free. Coupled with the fact that just a little bit earlier, the CERN CERN laboratory in Geneva had decided to not try to license and get a fee for the Tim Berners-Lee's protocol. Mm -hmm. Tim Berners-Lee, Tim Berners-Lee, apostrophe S, <laughs> protocols <laughs> that are the protocols of the internet. Yeah. So they were now available for free, and the browser, the the first kind of optimized for website creation browser was available for free. Mm -hmm. And is then those two things happened just like basically at the moment that I got sworn in to be the FCC chair. And in the same time period, they passed over that I earlier mentioned to you. And this was by one vote, Marjorie Margolis Mazinski, and she later lost her seat in, in the out in the main line in Philadelphia, but the reward was that her 
son got to marry into the Clinton family. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this was a hard one thing to pass this Rubenesque budget. Uh-huh. Um, and it ultimately, uh, that and the health care imbroglio cost us the uh, House and, and Senate in 1994. But, in, but the relevance of the story is that embedded in OBRA was the command to the FCC to completely change the cellular industry by auctioning licenses. Oh, okay. I didn't so, know that was in, in there. So at one and the same time, the FCC is dealt these amazing cards, which is now we have software that, is, that could completely revolutionize the information platform of the world, and also you are supposed to totally do something wonderful with the wireless industry by auctioning the spectrum, but no rules. Mm-hmm. Just you have the authority, but no, mm-hmm. no uh, description of what to do. <laughs> so, and then the last thing, which was which, which was the albatross, was. Oh, and there's the Cable Act of 1992 that has been completely mishandled by the FCC in 93 because all cable rates went up instead of down. It was supposed to go down. And so I walk into the FCC and it, it, in the, like in one hour I'm told, you have to completely redo the Cable Act to make all cable prices go down. Oh, we have this statute that's just been passed that says you have to auction spectrum. No one has ever done it before except one time in New Zealand and it was a complete disaster. <laughs> no one knows how to do it. No one knows, you know, like good luck with this and it needs to be a huge success. Uh, and uh, also, you know, there's some kind of new technology or something and you better meet some people and talk about it. <laughs> oh, and one other thing, there was 400 people in Congress had asked me to cut a special break for independent long distance companies. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> meaning little rural ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so like, wow, this is like really a weird place, this FCC. Um, decrepit building, you know, some engineer came up and told me that there were so much, so many papers filed on one floor that the building needed to be propped up or the floor would collapse. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was just a dreary, miserable place that you know, rug seemed to have some kind of bugs or smell in it. And the day that I walked in, several African Americans came to me and told me they were going to sue me for racial discrimination. And I said, I like just walked in, not only am I innocent, but like I just walked in. They said, yeah, well, you just happen to be the chairman and the case will be us versus the chairman and we're just picking on you. And I said, just could you give me a chance? They, you know, ultimately we built a very diverse, brilliant workforce. They did not sue, but that was like, you know, boy, this government is quite something. Um, <laughs> anyhow, the, 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 just racing through history, the next thing that happens is a real, I would say, at least multiple decades of significance. The next thing that happens is... Can I, did, you, did, you, did you end up meeting with Andreessen at all? I'm going to tell you. Okay. That's all exactly right. the story. Okay. Uh, is I'm uh, getting to know different people, and in that time period, the tech industry, not only was it nascent, but it might have been on the, on the other side of the moon. I mean, they didn't have any interest in Washington. But, uh, but I uh, was called over to uh, the White House by uh, Greg Simon, who was working 
uh, it, it was in the old executive office building, but Greg Simon was Al Staffer, and he, this is like roughly speaking, um, December of 93 or January of 94, and he shows me this uh, picture on the computer of the uh, Venus de Milo in the Louvre. And I said, what a great screensaver. He says, this is not a screensaver. This is coming over the telephone network directly from a camera that's looking at it. And I said, like, what is that about? And he said, well, it's this, it's the internet. Uh, he said, this is completely and totally transformational. And you know, to think that you can use a telephone line to convey this picture means you can convey any information. And I was like, yeah, this is really huge. And as it happened, Al was going to go in January to the UCLA, to Royce Hall, to give a vision speech, which you remember I had told you that all through 93, he'd been developing this mm -hmm. kind of social vision of the kid connecting to the Library of Congress. So he goes to Royce Hall in, in Los Angeles, and and I went with him, and <laughs> he had Lily Tomlin do her routine uh, with the uh, telephone operator. Uh -huh. It was very funny, and I actually gave a follow-on talk, and in that talk I said, uh, you know, based on what I found out, the internet is going to be the way this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I was very struck by the fact that uh, Ted Cruz, uh, 10 days ago, issued a video online in which he said something like, now they're talking about net neutrality, and they're using a 81-year-old statute uh, to, to try to deal with something that no one could possibly have envisioned. <laughs> well, they didn't envision it in 1934 when the Communications Act was passed. I will grant him that. But it was absolutely envisioned by Al Gore and his team in the winter of 93-94. What, what would happen was absolutely envisioned. And in fact, that was one of the motivations for passing the 96 Act, which actually is the act that the FCC is using. So Senator Cruz did, didn't know who the real visionaries were and didn't know the date of the statute that's being interpreted by the, uh, by the uh, uh, FCC right now. But, you know, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, in any case, uh, so I think it was on that same trip I went up to San Francisco and uh, I started meeting with a bunch of people uh, who really didn't, you know, it was, they were basically like, you know, you folks at the FCC, you know, you probably need to know a few things. Eric Schmidt, I don't have any idea how I found him, but Eric Schmidt was at Sun and he had dinner at his house and Mark Andreessen came. And uh, if I recall right, Mark was wearing bib overhauls and was barefoot. <laughs> but I definitely remember that he was huge, <laughs> which he isn't any of those other things anymore, but still really tall. Um, I think Mark at the time was 22. Um, and John Gage was there, John Doerr, uh, uh, and they all said this internet is going to be really, really big. Don't, don't, don't mess it up. <laughs> um, so, so um, we went. We we basically a whole bunch of people at the FCC. You know, we basically began really, really thinking as hard as we knew how to think about two things at the exact same time. What's the right thing to do with the wireless industry, and what do you do with the internet? <laughs>
the, the years past, um, meaning this whole process of trying to think about that and figuring out what rules ought to be written and what rules should be erased, that ends up being like the entire time that I'm there. I don't leave until the November of 1997. But, but right at the beginning, somewhere in, you know, let's say by, let's just say early 94, we had decided uh, two things collectively. After a lot of thinking, we had decided two things. First, the internet was going to borrow the existing telephone network and not pay a nickel for it. Uh -huh. And that was because that was the fastest way to have the internet grow, to reach everybody. And that's what we thought was the right thing to do because we thought it would be the dominant medium of information exchange for mm -hmm. the whole world. And the United States in particular had three huge advantages relative to every other country. Advantage number one, our telephone network reached about 97% of all households. So if you could use the telephone network to be on the internet, you already had solved the universal service problem. You already had it everywhere. Yeah. Number two, we had one of the highest penetrations of PCs and households. If memory serves, it was only about 27, 25%, but still was one of the highest in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we figured, look, the phone network is already there. If you can use that for free to connect to the internet, then you'll go out and buy a PC. Then the PC industry will soar, and we're already we have the we already have you know world leading penetration. So you know, pretty soon we'll have ninety. I mean, what will we have? We want you know if it's going to be the the dominant medium, you want it to be universal for social reasons and economic reasons. Yeah. So that was the internet vision. The wireless vision was there's no possible way that in a hundred years you could imagine a wire-based communication system reaching Africa, China, Asia. I remember in 94 I went to um, Japan on a mission and met with the chief uh, regulator of China. Uh, we we Wu Ji Xuan, W-U, new word, J-I hyphen C-H-U-A-N. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, you know, how many people do you have working for you? And I said about 2,000. And it's one of the biggest, it's the biggest regulatory agency in the world. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I have a million people working for me. <laughs> because as the chief regulator in the Communist Party controlled system, he also basically ran all the telephone companies. Mm -hmm. He picked the CEOs. They were state-owned, <laughs> and he said, "I've decided we're building a uh, we're going to build the equivalent of a wire-based Bell telephone network every single year." Mm -hmm. And I said, "That's a terrible mistake. You're building the wrong technology. It, it should be wireless." Um, he said, "You don't know what you're talking about." Uh, I did know what I was talking about at least that one time, <laughs> uh, and eventually they recouped that mistake and. You know, that's what China Mobile is, mm -hmm. 700 million users, something like that. Uh, but so, so, so just for cost reasons alone, you know, it was very, very clear that wireless would be the dominant communications medium the way the internet was going to be the dominant information medium. Mm -hmm. so, so if you're the regulator, you're, you can either uh, say, I want to slow that down, or I want to open the door to the possibility of it going as fast as the economics and the marketing permits. Mm -hmm. 
you could say I want to be neutral, but there's no such thing as neutral. Mm-hmm. I mean, every decision you make is not non-neutral. It's like saying that the referee in a, you know, in a basketball game is neutral, right? Neutral would mean you don't make any calls at all, and there are no fouls. In which case, you know, the bigger, batter guy is going to always beat up the other one. Mm-hmm. And if you're neutral about wireless, what it would mean is that the wireline industry would thwart the success of the wire mm-hmm. wireless industry. For, for, for network effects reasons, here's why. Pretend like I'm on the telephone, hardwire telephone line and you're the wireless guy, but you're the first wireless customer in the United States. Uh-huh. Bear in mind, there had never been any digital wireless before, so I was auctioning the first digital licenses. Mm-hmm. Okay, who do you phone? You can only phone the wireline guy. Mm-hmm. Right. So neutral would mean the wireline guy could charge you, I don't know, whatever they wanted, 20 cents a minute for making the call. Yeah. And in many countries, that's what happened. Uh-huh. We decided, just to give you one example, that that charge would be one-tenth of one penny. Mm-hmm. Incredibly low charge that meant that the network effects of the wireline industry would be shared by the wireless industry. Mm-hmm. Okay. That meant that the door was open for wireless to grow as fast as the basic cost-based economics of wireless would permit, mm-hmm. and that the network effects would work for the wireless instead of against them. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. Similar policy decisions were made about wireless, many similar policy decisions, but they all were, let's, let's level the competitive playing field meaning let's take away the advantages of the wireline industry and then let's just see what happens. But, but then, of course, you knew that wireless would win. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the two basic decisions. Let's, have the, let's open the door to the Internet growing faster and more pervasively in the United States than anywhere in the world because this is the ideal information platform. And let's ha- open the door to wireless growing faster in the United States than anywhere in the world because this is the ideal global communications platform. Mm-hmm. Both those things happened. Uh-huh. But of course you can't, you know, the regulator can't make a uh, crummy technology succeed, or they can, but not for very long and only by, you know, uh, extreme efforts that really are not, almost certainly not appropriate. Right, right. right. Now that does happen. Um, for example, the United States in the 1960s made uh, an effort to um, base the energy platform on nuclear, and it was very, very misguided, mm-hmm. um, and has ultimately petered out and isn't successful. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, the technologies picked, you know, it's it's that effort that is the Fukushima plant. That's one of the one of the power plants that is the. Mm-hmm chosen technology of that era. So you can have the government make a big mistake in, in backing a technology roadmap, mm-hmm. but uh, we weren't spending taxpayer money doing this. We were using rules to, I think, eliminate incumbent advantage and mm-hmm. open the door to innovators. In summary, <laughs> uh, what happened? Uh, every single device that you or anyone has used in the United States to com- to electronically do stuff, <laughs> every single device since around 2003 up to the present, mm-hmm. 
is something that would not work if you time traveled back to 1993, mm-hmm. 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. when I became the FCC chairman. Meaning the entire network of networks that was used for all forms of communication information exchange, television, wireline, wireless, you name it. Uh, nothing that we use now, if you time traveled back, would work on those old platforms. The whole thing was rebuilt. Yeah. The whole thing was rebuilt. Uh, it was rebuilt at an approximate capital investment of $1 trillion, mm-hmm. which occurred in approximately 1995 to 2003, mm-hmm. just eight years. Yeah. That incredible surge of capital investment to the delight of consumers <laughs> turned out to be somehow, no one can mathematically know exactly how, the catalyst of the great economic boom. Mm -hmm. And because it was a huge infrastructure project, this trillion dollars, the people employed in the infrastructure project were from all walks of life and all skill sets. Mm -hmm. People with ladders climbing poles and stringing wire. People with trucks driving out in the middle of nowhere to build, you know, cellular base stations. Plus software engineers, plus, you know, people making chips. So, you know, everybody with every skill set was in huge demand and employment soared. Mm -hmm. Not just in this sector, but this sector accounted for 2.1 million net new jobs Mm -hmm. in, in the time period I mentioned. OBRA, it's been proved, the great budget balancing law turned out to have a modestly negative effect on GDP. Really? Modestly negative. You can look it up in a book by Alan Blinder called The Golden Decade, uh, which was published in around 2001 or two. But the, but the communications revolution and this huge capital investment explosion, that was the great stimulus yeah. and produced really, really low uh, uh, unemployment, which in turn correlated to the 90s being the only decade since the 1960s when every quintile in the, ec- in the income ladder in the economy saw its wages go up. Mm-hmm. Every statistic you read now about how wages have been down since 1970, that's true from 1970 to the present, but it wasn't true in the 1990s. Mm-hmm the gains of the 90s were erased in the zeros and in the teens because of the Bush administration's policies in the zero zeros and the Great Recession of 08 and 09. Right, right. Uh, when I say their policies, the Bush administration uh, cut taxes for the upper income, those are the famous Bush tax cuts, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, unbalanced the budget which had become, which had gone into surplus because of the, principally because of all these good economic things and because of the tremendous tax revenues from the tech industry. Mm -hmm. Again, that's often not uh, remembered, but the, every time an option was granted, what happened was that the option recipient in the 90s was given obviously given a share of stock mm-hmm. that was made up effectively from nothing, right? right? And then if the stock went up, which it generally did all through the 90s, mm-hmm. and then they sold, then they had a big gain from the day of grant to the 
the sale, and that was taxed at an, in, at an income tax rate, mm -hmm. not at a capital gains tax rate. So all of the uh, gains accruing to the very rich that are, this is the story of the last five years, the gains accrued to all option recipients mm -hmm. and were taxed at income tax rate, not capital gains tax rates, mm -hmm. all through the 1990s. This had a huge beneficial effect on uh, California's uh, um, tax revenue, but also the American tax revenue. Quantitative easing in the 1990s, the Fed's technique for injecting money, that was option grants in the Quantitative easing in these in nowadays in the last five years, in the nineties was option grants. Mm -hmm. Americans sold net two point one trillion dollars of stock in the nineteen nineties. That's oh, a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> and you say, how could you sell net? Because for every seller, there's a buyer, right? But the answer is, if you're given the option, <laughs> it's a sale. Yeah. There's no preceding buying. Right. 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 How, how did you how did you not end up at some internet uh, company in those days? You you, you had to see what was you happening. You mean when I left? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. Um, did you? In late nineteen ninety seven, when I left, uh -huh. um, Andy Grove called me up and he said, "Would you like to come and work at Intel?" Uh -huh. And uh, I interviewed for two days, and then on New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety-seven, he called up and he said, "You don't fit here. There's no job for you here." <laughs> uh, but Andy Ratcliffe of Benchmark came to me and said, "Will you be a venture capitalist, venture partner at Benchmark?" Uh -huh. And uh, Andy Ratcliffe and I started three companies. Uh, uh, the most. The most almost successful of them was one called Sigma Networks uh, that is the business model that is the very successful uh, networking company called Zayo, Z-A-Y-O. Mm -hmm. But all of our companies ran into the terrible headwinds for the tech industry of 2001. Mm -hmm. And so they were all eventually sold and, you know, the, the, the thing that I didn't do was end up being involved in one of the over-the-top companies mm -hmm. like Google or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But that's just a failure of foresight on my part. <laughs> and, luck. Huh? and luck, to a certain degree. Well, I mean, Google was kind of funny because I was on the board of Novell with Eric Schmidt and I uh, uh, counseled him to go to Google, leave Novell, and I helped work out his compensation package with Novell because he was <laughs> a little worried that Google wouldn't work out. Yeah, yeah. I should have told him, just you know, carry me with you. <laughs> but I don't have any regrets, Kevin, because I wanted to stay in Washington, and I wanted to stay in Washington and not move out there. I've been traveling out there ever since, but I didn't. I wanted to stay in Washington for a really simple reason, which is Gore was going to get elected president in 2000, and I was going to go back into the government in 2001. Mm -hmm. And but for 500 people in Florida marking Hep Buchanan on their ballots by accident. <laughs> That's what would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the whole story. That's the whole story. Um, tell me, so you, you um, have, you, you did still do, did some advising with Obama when he was um, the Oh, yeah. And things like that. Um, in 2003, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, Julius Janikowski, who had worked with me at the FCC, told me that I ought to meet his law school classmate. Uh, Barack Obama, he said he could go all the way. Mm -hmm. 
I met with Obama. I was then working at McKinsey. I met with him, and I told him two things. I said, uh, here's a question for you. If you were in the Senate right now, would you um, have voted for the Iraq invasion? And he said, like, oh, I don't know, this, that, and the other. And I said, the only possible answer to this is no. Mm -hmm. I said, if you want to have a future in democratic politics the, and you want to run for the Senate in Illinois, which was what he wanted to do at that time, I said, the only possible answer is no. He says, everybody here is saying, you know, on the one hand, on the other, I said, take my advice. The only possible mm -hmm. successful answer <laughs> is this is a bad war. Uh -huh. I knew this, be, not because I was an Iraq expert, because actually I would called Gore in January of 2003. Remember, we invaded in March. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I said, I've never asked you this question because it's so painful to ask, but if you were the president now, what would you do? Just right now, not having been the president between 2001 and 2003, what would you do? He took the question very seriously. He said, I know what they did. I know they fell for Chalabi's lies. The guy's a complete charlatan. Uh, Clinton and I told them that he was a charlatan, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't believe anything we said about anything. Mm -hmm. And they totally wanted to believe all the stuff after 9-11 that was told to them about you know, how the Middle East was going to be transformed. And now they're way, way, you know, at the edge of the diving board and they've conditioned the whole world to believe that, you know, they have to invade Iraq and they still shouldn't do it because it's going to be a disaster. Very prescient. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't say it publicly. He wasn't trying to get attention. He just told me. But I didn't quote Gore. I just passed it on to Obama. Obama did actually say at the time in on video, you know, I wouldn't be voting for this war. That turned out to be the key to his success against Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. If he had been pro-Iraq war, he wouldn't have been able to distinguish himself from Hillary. Hillary won 48% of the delegates, so it was it was a close it's thing. Close so that was the piece of advice I gave him that was brilliant, and then I also told him that he should uh, change his name to his high school nickname, Barry, if he really wanted to be successful in politics on a national <laughs> level. And he looked at me and he said, you don't like Barack? And I said, no, I just think people will think it's weird. And he said, they'll get used to it. <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> So I was 50-50 in advice, which in Washington is pretty yeah, good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, we, we stayed in pretty close touch, and uh, uh, and he didn't know many people in Washington, so it wasn't too hard to, to stay in close touch. He, Obama, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And then in, let's see now, uh, in the fall of 2006, that's right. In the fall of 2006, he asked me if I would arrange for him to meet Al Gore. Like I told you, he didn't know too many people. He'd never met Al Gore. Mm -hmm. So I arranged for uh, the Obamas, both of them, to fly to Nashville to spend the day with Alan Tipper, which turned out to occur after the November election. Mm -hmm. That's right. After the November election. Mm -hmm. And the, the 
or maybe it was maybe it was right before it was right in the same time period and it and the 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 basic discussion was veiled was you going to run for president or are you going to run for president <laughs> that was the discussion <laughs> right <laughs> and obama came back and uh, he had read inferred that Gore wasn't going to run mm -hmm. and he had decided that he was going to run. <laughs> that's funny. So that's what that's what happened. So then Obama told me that. Mm -hmm. And then Julius and I and Bill Kennard, mm -hmm. the Bill. three of us hosted the very first fundraiser uh, uh, for the Obama presidential campaign that was in a house not owned by David Geffen. <laughs> Namely, it was in my house. It was the first big East Coast fundraiser. It was featured in the Wall Street Journal, and we were all, all three of us were castigated as being traitors to the, uh, to the Clintons, yeah. uh, which, who I greatly admired, but I, uh, I, just, I just felt like uh, time for a change, you know, yeah. which of course was the theme, but I really felt like it was important. and. And uh, obviously, that's sort of the way that things went. Yeah. Uh, but I'll wrap this up by saying that I asked Obama in early '07 for a favor. He said, "What is it?" I guess people will be asking me for a lot of favors. I said, "My favor is I want you to hire my son Nathaniel, who's graduating from college in in June." Mm -hmm. He said, "What what's he going to do?" And I said, "Whatever." So he hired Nathaniel and sent him to Iowa. And in, by, by the middle of June 2007, our son Nathaniel was in Algona, Iowa, a town of 6,000, running six counties for the Obama campaign. Mm -hmm. And Nathaniel is in David Axelrod's memoir that just came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Axelrod doesn't give his name, but says, these, these young kids in Iowa who got there as, much, as many as five months ahead of the Clinton mm -hmm. people, they are the ones who did the missionary work, mm -hmm. and they're the ones that, that won the election. And one of them was so popular in his small town that the people of the town asked him to stay and run for city council. Uh, that was it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. Well, this was great, and, and actually, I have to because I have to get to Union Station and catch a train back to New York. I have to go too. 